Hi everyone, welcome to Howling Coyote Podcast. And I'm Louis Malmadrona, speaking to you from the unceded territories of the Penobscot Nation. And I wish to honor their elders, past, present, and future. It's upon their land that the University of Maine sits. So we acknowledge them. And I want, I'm privileged to have Johanna Lynch with me tonight. She's the president of the Australian and New Zealand GP Psychotherapy Association. And I hope, hopefully I said that right. And uh, I met her at the International Childhood Trauma Conference in Melbourne this year, this August. And I thought it would be fabulous to, to find out more about GP psychotherapy and, and her association and what people are doing in Australia and New Zealand. So, Johanna, uh, tell us more about yourself and, and take it away. Thank you. So thank you so much for having me here, Lewis. And it was such a joy to meet you in Melbourne and having only met you online when you so kindly um, were part of the focus group I did around some of my research uh, through NAPCRAG. So I'm very thankful to have met you um, and Barbara, your wife. Um, I am a GP here in Brisbane and my uh, home is on the lands of the Kwandamuka people um, who we live right on the edge of the sea and so um, there's a couple of islands offshore uh, and dugongs and humpback whales and um, beautiful um, rainforest as well as um, sea seas to be part of and um, this land has been cared for by elders from the past and um, the present, and we um, are thankful for them being here and for the way they care for this land into the future. Um, I just have to correct you a little bit, Lewis. Um, our organisation is only Australian at this stage, although we happily welcome New Zealand uh, connections um, and we call ourselves the uh, Australian Society for Psychological Medicine. Um, and we do at the moment, that's the naming that captures us as well as we can. Um, we uh, want something that helps note our, our kind of extra skills in the area of psych psychotherapy uh, while still maintaining a grounding in our medical skills and particularly our generalist medical skills as GPs. And um, we do have friends of the society who are non-GPs and we have international friends of the society uh, from around the world. Um, uh, but we try to keep the core of it at the moment um, to, in order to encourage GPs in the unique kind of way they engage with people who are in distress. Um, and uh, we are wrestling with the term G GP psychotherapist. Not all of our members use that term. Others call themselves the mental health GP or psychological medicine um, GP uh, or GP counsellor. Those are the different terms that people use. And um, we are trying to just, uh, sort of um, determine standards of what, what would be a really good one of us and what name to call us when you get there. Um, at the moment, we have a credentialing process that leads to someone becoming a fellow of the Australian Society for Psychological Medicine. And that requires that they prove they've done extra training in, in mental health um, areas, that they've done experience, and that they also have um, skills in reflective practice and that they've participated in ongoing supervision of their work in order to have the discipline of reflecting on their work and um, to improve it with their peers. Uh, so those are uh, the beginnings of our processes of um, working out how do we name the work that we do? How do we not get too far away from our generalist roots in that attempts to become more useful in the mental health space where people might want us to be working? Um, how to draw it back into seeing the whole person is at times we talk about generalist mental health or the language we prefer is whole person care and complex whole person care as a way of acknowledging the whole person. 
Um, I think I mentioned to you in the beginning that there was some uh, difficulty with the term mental when we consider ourselves generalists. And um, and so we we say, you know, what is a mental? It's, it's not a way we would describe a person. Um, and I think it actually narrows our view when we determine someone who's in distress is mentally unwell. Um, we might then narrow what we look for. And I'm, I'm sure we can discuss that a little bit more as we go along. Yeah, you remind me um, when I did my GP training in the 1970s, it was expected that we would do counseling and it was expected that we would do family therapy. Mm. And um, it's certainly not the case today in the United States. And it's expected that we won't do counseling and that we won't do, you know, family therapy. And it strikes me as odd because, you know, the, the, the relationship that one forms with people over years gives one a certain leverage that a stranger would have to work years to find. And um, to not um, take advantage of that seems odd to me. And and I've you know I've I've recently um, left full time teaching in the residency as we call them here mm -hmm. uh, GP training and I now work for the five tribes um, as the medical director for the public health district but um, I could never get. I could never really get anyone to buy into doing counseling of any kind, mm. uh, with with one exception. One resident was really interested in the whole um, prospect, and I just found out recently he's um, on page two hundred and fifty of a book he's writing about the the horrors of his medical training. <laughs> And so I thought, well, this is going to be interesting to read. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, we would have similar um, almost divisions within the GP community about how we address this issue. And those of us who've decided to do it more full-time in our work, um, most of the are doing it in response to the need in our community. Uh, and the way our patients approach us. So we talk about uh, our patients choosing us. Um, and so in my early work, I would have just had much more women, uh, mostly women in, in distress, coming to talk to me and spending longer talking to me than they would to the other people in the clinic. And I gradually, without any refer, any marketing or anything like that, I gradually built up a a group of patients that had some things in that were similar about them. And I kept on noticing, as we do in general practice, noticing the patterns and that they were going in and out of a psychiatric hospital without um, uh, anybody listening to their story, their life story. That And some of them had not told anybody, as you said, they, they waited and checked me out with a few minor things or you know, in some cases, waited years. I just had someone tell me something after six years of therapy, um, checking out to to check if I was going to be a safer person to tell about the bad things that happened to them than the first person they tried to tell when they were 13. And um, so this kind of presence in the community where people come to you waiting to work out if they can trust you is a unique place in the whole kind of ecosystem of mental health and um, I think it's really important for us to be aware of. And I think that um, psychiatry is not very user-friendly in the United States and I, I don't know about Australia but I suspect it's not very friendly either based on the psychiatrist whom I've met. Oops. And um, it, it's, it's very transactional. So you give me a symptom and I give you a drug. Mm -hmm. 
or I refer you to the psychotherapists. And in the United States, um, most psychotherapy is done by social workers, which is perhaps not the case in Australia. Um, <clears throat> so um, we we um, we have very few psychologists and uh, mostly social workers doing psychotherapy and uh, many of whom are quite good and you know well trained but when let's say somebody's hospitalized and they get referred to the social worker they're a stranger you know it's it's a stranger relationship and 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 we have this other term that I absolutely detest and it's it's med manager and somebody called me a med manager the other day and I said I am not a med manager do not call me that I am a physician you can call me that <laughs> you know? and um, it seems that the that it's in the general practice world that relationships can really be built and and flourish and be nurtured over time. Yes, I would agree. I think the continuity when we understand about attachment and how actually it's not wise to tell strangers everything about you, especially if you've been damaged by other human beings for being yourself. Uh, and especially if other human beings have hurt you when you have told the secrets of the bad things that have happened, uh, which often those who've been, uh, you know, really severely abused are also programmed to fear when they tell the truth or when they tell what's happened. Um, they keep the secrets very diligently for the perpetrator. Um, so I think continuity is the only way that those people will ever receive help. Um, because they very wisely don't trust people they've just met um, for for reasons of their own history. Uh, the the other thing that we highly value about the GP who does this work is that they are um, naturally, you know, we I think it's almost built into the way that that good GPs listen. Uh, is that we're attending to the whole story, including um, the current environment, the culture of that person and place, the work culture they have to live in, the school culture they have to live in, um, the, the quality of their current relationships, uh, what's going on in their body, including attending to physical pain and chronic illness and sleeplessness and loss of energy that are all very important in this space and often have multiple causes. And um, and then we're tuned into their inner life, you know, how they feel towards themselves and and even, you know, existential distress. You know, there's GPs in, the, in Norway who are studying existential unease and how it's linked to multimorbidity. And so this potential place for the generalist in mental health, I think, needs to really be noticed and named and protected, honed, you know, so that people are better at it. Then, you know, we, we've got a, a process where you can refine your skills in that space, but that we, we all, you know, we're starting to talk about generalist mental health as a way to distinguish it from other ways that we see um, the person or generalist whole person care. Well, and, and, you know, when you think about the way that people are divided up by organs, it, it really makes no sense. And I remember uh, probably 20 years ago, I was driving into Manhattan, New York City, and Columbia University had a, bo a billboard um, on the George Washington Bridge that said, at Columbia, we have a doctor for every one of your organs. <laughs> wow. I thought, but well, you, what about one that cares for them all together? <laughs> right, right. You don't have a doctor for all of you, just every one of your organs. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
And that fragmentation really bothers me in terms of the person then themselves has to hold the whole when they go to the doctor and there's this assumed um, capacity to have agency to gather yourself together to present yourself and your needs to another person whereas those of us who are distressed that's when we we are personally at our most fragmented and we actually in that time need a healer who can continue to see the whole right and you know there's i mean something funny in in my world i I provide oversight and supervision for the family nurse practitioners at the psychiatric hospital because they don't have any physicians who will um, do medical things. And there's, they're constantly fighting with the psychiatrists about what is medical and what is psychiatric. And, and so this, the, this last Friday when we met, <coughs> we were talking about delirium. So the psychiatrists were saying, well, delirium is medical. We don't have to deal with it. <laughs> and we were talking about how much of the time it's from the psychiatric drugs that the person is delirious. <laughs> and it just seemed like the, the absolute, you know, sort of the ultimate in siloing, you know. And, and um, it, just, it just annoys me to, to know um, end that psychiatrists in the United States pretend that there's no body. Like it's a, it you know it's all um, well it's a complex situation with the brain because they they don't want anything neurological that goes to neurology <laughs> you know? and it's just it's just insane the way people get divided up here. And, um, you know, I think about, I mean, in the practice that I do, it, there's, a, you know, I'm both a GP and a psychiatrist and, and also a psychologist. And, um, but I don't really divide it up, you know. If I'm talking, like today, I was talking to someone um, whom I'm primarily, she came to me for anxiety. But she showed me her foot, and it was had red streaks going up from a wound. And I said, hmm, I think you need some Bactrim, because <laughs> you have diabetes, <laughs> and this is not good. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, we did that as part of our encounter. And it just seems so much more efficient to be addressing the whole person as opposed to one small part of them. And I, I thought maybe you could say a little more about your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I'm so passionate about the concept of whole person care uh, and that it's a sort of an antidote to both ends of the extremes. So at one end, we sort of have the biotechnical, divide the person up to study them, treat the body like an object and uh, sort of look down the microscope at it or down the blood test at it and make decisions in that way. And at the other end, we have the kind of uh, movement that is trying to bring in social sciences knowledge where we pay attention to subjective experience and we um, tune into culture and connection and um, meaning. Um, but in that process, there is... Um, the potential to ignore the body and to ignore the lived reality of someone's life and so in the middle i think is the potential for this concept whole person care and others before me have been writing in this space um you know there was a consensus statement on on um excuse me is the noise in the background bothering you because i could move no. I don't hear the noise in the background. Yeah. Um, so the um, yeah the potential for um, people to ignore either the social at one end or ignore the body at the other and ignore amazing advances we have in the care of the body that are also important for care. Uh, and I think the generalist sits in this place in the middle that potentially can hold those two kinds of knowledge 
Uh, but it's more than just holding them next to each other, like in a mixed methods study where you've got the qualitative and the quantitative next to each other. It's this very beautiful discerning that happens with an experienced clinician that can bring in the knowledge that somebody's dog died yesterday and that their mood is low and their blood pressure is up and trying to work out which one's the first important thing to deal with today is very subtle it's very relational it's based on experience um, and expertise you know there's an expertise in this skill set of connecting um, to the whole person and deciding what's most important to be done um, and there's some beautiful thinkers that talk about generalism as expertise in whole person care um, as bringing together biology and biography as a way of thinking about this task um as requiring special skills in you know and the the place i found the most help to define or describe these skills which i've written on as the craft of generalism um is the transdisciplinary thinkers the people who already are trying to wrestle with how do we think across different types of knowledge because they require a different way of seeing the world you know, the biological end with the technical decision-making, it requires precision and it requires being able to predict things and being able to repeat them and, you know, use them, generalise a small thing to a wider group because you've been so precise. And at the other end, the social science knowledge requires capacity to relate and discuss and dialogue and form knowledge in relationship and in conversation. And uh, that form of knowledge requires a different way of understanding and doesn't so much look for truth as looking for authenticity. Um, and so you can get where clinicians only are good at one type of knowledge management and find it uncomfortable to be in the other type of knowledge management and can disparage each other based on which one's considered the better level of evidence for the way they see the world and that ends up leading to more and more division between those of us who are trying to help so i've been thinking about what is this skill this transdisciplinary skill that can bring these two types of knowledge together and help us to see the whole again and the writings of it in generalism and the writings about it in transdisciplinary work kind of have four main um, principles one is that it's very broad in its scope that we intentionally look really wide um, and we don't um, scrimp on that and we don't bypass it by using diagnosis you know sometimes we would say someone's depressed as a diagnosis and we'd completely bypass seeing the whole by using that word and we potentially have blinded ourselves to seeing what's really going on by using that word uh, the second element is it's a relational process of forming the knowledge that requires a subjective tuned in capacity of both both parties to form understanding about what's going on. And uh, that's a very discerning, subtle, relational um, sensitivity uh, that's important uh, for this kind of holding space of holding the whole. And the third is that we continually are focused on healing. So a healing orientation. Because we have so much knowledge to discern amongst, we must make a priority about how, how we're going to pay attention. And so we're interested in things that help us to bring healing. And that helps us to sift through the different types of potential distractors in a consulting room or clinical experience. Uh, and the final one is integrative wisdom. And that idea that we're bringing together, but there's this element of discernment that comes, gets better over time. Like we get more and more experienced at this way of being with other people where we're bringing things together, but we're also holding the knowledge very lightly. Uh, you know, in general practice, we talk a lot about holding off on diagnoses, on what we call premature diagnosis because we know we might have missed something and we need to just hold it a little bit longer, being uncertain about what's going on before we decide what's the matter. And that's a particular wisdom to be able to sit with a very uncomfortable feeling of not knowing exactly what's the matter 
because we're waiting for more knowledge or a little bit more information or a bit more time to pass before we can see it more clearly. And so that's that fourth element, integrative wisdom, that I think is part of this skill set. And I think there's an important way in which um, what you're saying represents a convergence with Indigenous knowledge. Yes. Because Indigenous medicine um, or Indigenous healing is all about whole person. And, and considering simultaneously all aspects of the person, including the place where they're standing and who they're standing there with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, it just works better. And, yeah. and what's interesting is, maybe you can speak to this, but, but so my, my friend Patrick, who's a um, nurse practitioner, psychiatric nurse practitioner, medical nurse practitioner, and social worker getting a PhD in social, social work, says that the problem with medicine is that it has no philosophy built into it. It's a-philosophical. And um, without philosophy, you have no grounding from which to approach people. Like you, you don't know where you're coming from or where you're going or where you're standing unless you have a philosophy. And, and what I see, at least in the United States, is that the role of the GP is becoming to apply algorithms to people. And, and the ironic aspect of that is that GPs are being replaced by nurse practitioners with computers because the computer is quite capable of applying the algorithm. And, and and the the person before us disappears. Poof, they're gone. We're just we're just applying algorithms. You know, and one of my one of my least favorite algorithms is the statin algorithm which says that every male over age sixty three should be on a statin. And um you know, one of my um, students went into a deeper dive about that and found out that you have to treat 226 people with a statin to prevent one cardiovascular event. And of those 226 people, you'll give 12 diabetes from the statin, and 40 will stop exercising from the statin because of the muscle problems. and. So what are you really doing? And a colleague of mine noted that the introduction and the widespread use of statins has not changed all-cause mortality, one iota. Mm -hmm. And and so um, you know, so we had this discussion once upon a time in a, a meeting about so why are we doing this? You know what? Are we just salesmen? Because statins are the second most profitable drug in the world. Um, so what's our purpose here? And I remember that the other GP faculty got enraged at me for questioning statins because they're sacred. Statins are sacred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the risk when you don't have a philosophy that other things become worshipped. <laughs> Indeed. And, and, and what are your thoughts about philosophy for general practice and for psychological medicine? Mm, oh, I, well, first of all, I want to agree with you that I think First Nations peoples have protected this knowledge about how we see the person. Um, uh, since the Greek philosophy and uh, then, you know, we, we often talk about Descartes in this space, dividing the body and the mind up to, to think about and to discuss and to study. Nobody's put them back together again. 
Um, and in my my book on this subject, I use the analogy of Humpty Dumpty. I don't know if you know of Humpty Dumpty that he fell off a wall and all was all in lots of pieces and the king's horses couldn't and the king's men couldn't put him back together again. And and so that I think that's what's happened to medicine is that there's all these experts in the pieces, but there's nobody really with the shared language. We've now got dialects across the disciplines with jargon where we can even be talking about the same thing but using different words and not aware that somebody from another discipline is trying to get the same result using a different word to describe what they're doing. And language can become a divider amongst the parts as well. Uh, so I think that piece where we say uh, for the you know the First Nations understanding that I'm still very much learning here in Australia, but which I uh, deeply want to honor um, and which has been put into medical language, you know, social and emotional well-being being a way of seeing the whole. Um, and you know that focus on well-being, I think can help us and, the idea that you're you're you don't have a mental that's separated from your relationships that it's social and emotional, and if we think of emotion as embodied, then that helps us remember the body in that framework as well. Uh, and we took when I did my research on asking people what causes threat, um, indigenous um, uh, stakeholders talked about connection to country or being in the wrong place on the wrong land in land that they shouldn't be on um and they also um you know reminded us around that connection to relationships but we also had farming communities talking about connection to land and being very aware of the weather and of drought and of land they have farmed for many many generations so um, this reminder that our place um, is very important to our well-being um, is now becoming a little bit more understood in some areas, but I'm just thankful for First Nations people for continuing to teach their children this culture so that we now have people to turn to when we realize we've fragmented the body so much we cannot remember how to see it whole. Um, and then if I think about philosophy, part of the reason I think the biopsychosocial model has not had uptake the way we assent to it you know we we in theory naturally would say of course a person is biological social and psychological in, in their makeup um why wouldn't we when we see someone for a diagnosis consider all of those areas of them but if we only use that kind of reductionist way of seeing where we're looking for truth then we'll just look for the events. We'll look for the objects in someone's life. And I'll give a good example when we teach medical students. Please, can you do a history on this person? And they think they've ticked off the social when they've told us they live in alone in a house with three stairs. And, um, you know, they might add that they've got a dog or something like that. But that'll be the social ticked off. And it's seen through the lens of someone looking for events and facts, looking like they're looking down the microscope at the social, um, instead of this, what does it mean to them? How long have they lived in this house? What neighbor, what's the relationships with their neighbors? What's their community around them? That Where do they go to meet other people? Um, what's the kind of culture for them of this space? Um, that they're living in that gets left out if you're looking for just the objects and the events uh, and so I think what's happened with the biopsychosocial kind of framing is that it's great in theory but you need knowledge management skills that are philosophical about how you see a whole and you need the discipline of learning them because they're not they're not natural um some of them the idea of bringing together a social sciences way of seeing the world that's about authenticity and connection and meaning and context and culture with a biological way of seeing the world or reductionist way of seeing the world which is about precision and measuring and predicting and for a good generalist clinician you need to be good at both and you can't scrimp on either. 
Uh, and therefore, it requires a way of seeing the whole, whole person that includes these two different types of knowing, a way of understanding that you can have multiple realities, which is what the transdisciplinary literature talks about. That you can, yes, you can be very precise about someone's, you know, skin lesion at the same time that you're very aware that this skin lesion reminds them of the same disease their grandparent had. And so you're you're able to hold the distress of discovering they have the same condition as their forebears. Uh, and you understand the meaning of that to that individual. So I guess I would totally agree with you about philosophy. And you're doing really well because our medical students think they've done a social history when they say doesn't smoke, doesn't drink. That, and that's it. You know, and if I say, well, do they have any pets? They're like, well, why do we care about that? <laughs> you know? So it, it, it's sort of interesting. But yeah, I mean, I, I think ideally we would teach phenomenology, clinical phenomenology. And we would teach people how to get to the lived experience of the person that they're talking to. And, and we would teach them um, whatever you want to call it, holism, systems theory, whole person theory, that, that um, <clears throat> you know, we talk about uh, Eduaptamunk in Mi'kmaq, which means two-eyed seeing, which is really many-eyed seeing, explanatory pluralism, that there's many ways to look at something, and they're all true, and they're not always all useful. <laughs> so, so you find the one that's useful, or the ones that are useful. And in Mi'kmaq, which is one of the languages of the people I work with, there's something called which is the idea of interdependence and interrelatedness, that everything is. And so whatever you do affects everything else that you do. You know, and here in Maine, we're lucky to have a strong osteopathic presence. And, and I don't know about Australia, but in the United States, osteopathic physicians are equal to allopathic physicians, so DOs and MDs are the same. But the DOs have some training, more training in neuromuscular medicine. And um, so we have that idea that the osteopaths bring that the whole body is connected with through the fascia. And um, And you know, I thought it was it was sort of interesting at the trauma conference that there were no people there who put their hands on the body. I mean, may, maybe the psychological medicine people, but but it was a small room that we occupied in comparison to the larger conference. And I came home from that conference, and I I, re I remember we Barbara and I were listening to Ruth Linnaeus talk about how the first thing that happens is the orientation response, which is the neck. And and the second thing that happens is you hold your breath. And the third thing that happens is the autonomic nervous system. And I thought, oh my God, that's, that's the hands-on work that we do. That's the sequence. We start with the neck, and then we move to the breathing, and then we do craniosacral. You know, and I thought, you know, these guys could learn a lot from osteopathy. <laughs> and and really that's I think that's where the GP can bridge, you know, bridge the psychologists to the to the people who do me neuromuscular medicine. You know, and yeah, I would agree. Sorry I interrupted you there, Lewis. The Go for it, because we really want to know what you think more than what I think. <laughs> oh, no, I was just thinking the same thing. I think this is unique position for those of us who are used to touching the body and caring for the body and, in fact, have come from that tradition in our training uh, and where there's uh, 
sometimes quite intimate touch that we have to do in our role as physicians, uh, that we've learnt how to be with other people's bodies safely and they've learnt how to trust us with their bodies. Um, we're telling us about its symptoms and talking about its pains and aches um, and uh, the worries about the things they can't see inside their bodies that we have learnt to study and understand to some degree. Uh, and so I think the position as um, those of us who do psychotherapy, then being almost naturally tuned in to watching people's breathing rate and heart rate um, and fidgety body and muscles that are twitching and hands that don't want to sit still and body that sits forward on the chair or, or chooses the chair that's closest to the door. Um, those are the subtleties of this work where we pay attention to the body. Uh, and then we find that the latest treatments, the most successful treatments for trauma-informed care or trauma-specific care are connected and focused on the body and the body's experience of relationship, the body's experience of other people, the body's experience of remembering in the presence of another person um, and the body's capacity to soothe itself from the bottom up uh, from noticing our environment and connecting to the senses very intentionally. Um, then it gives us a unique place in the whole ecosystem of mental health provision where we are close to the body and are used to caring for the body. And it's not that far of a stretch to teach clinicians ways of helping the patient to soothe ways of slowing their own speech and their own breathing and tuning into their own body for intuitions about what to do next and clinically to, as to what to notice, what to pay attention to in the conversation more than something else. Um, to notice when our own bodies are feeling irritable with this patient for some unnamed reason and we realise, oh, there's something incoherent here, there's something worrying me, something bothering me. And it leads us to our next question. Uh, so this kind of presence of two bodies in the consulting room trying to look after each other, uh, I think is something we do practice every day in normal dinner practice, but we can refine it with this piece noticing subjective experience expressed through the body and historical memorial experiences expressed through the body. Uh, that I think it's part of the sort of trick or the, the kind of clue to how to treat um, you know, terrible trauma. Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, at least in my own work, I've, you know, I studied indigenous neuromuscular medicine, and then I have studied some osteopathic neuromuscular medicine. And I find that touching people while I talk to them is so much more powerful than not. That that when I'm when I when my hands are on the body and I'm feeling the muscles and the fascia, that the conversation arises out of that connection, and it becomes so much more targeted so much more interesting you know um you know i was i was talking to someone the other day about what did she want to name her back pain <laughs> you know and we came up with um the wicked witch of the the wicked witch from the wizard of oz i think her name was escalda or something like that es escalda and um and it was just so fun, but it was also so revealing as a metaphor. And it was also emerging through the hands-on work. And that's where I think GPs can excel. And psychiatrists are terrified to touch anyone. And I don't know why, because at least the ones I know don't have intimate relationships with anyone. I mean, they see people for... 10 to 15 minutes and write a prescription and and that doesn't seem very intimate or or um, dangerous but um, 
But anyway, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that um, the skill set of being with another person and being aware of both people and the problem that you're trying to discuss is something that Tom Hutchinson, one of the US writers on whole person care, would talk about. He'd talk about me, the other person, and then the problem or the diagnostic thing we've got trying to work out. And that through our medical careers, I think we have different focuses. At the very beginning, all we can think about is what the diagnostic problem is. And we're panicking, trying to remember lists that we memorize for exams in order to try and make sure we haven't missed something diagnostically. And often we forget ourselves. We forget to go for a lunch break or go to the toilet. And we often forget the other person as a person. Uh, and then there's different stages of the career where we're exhausted. We often can only see ourselves and we lose sight of the other two and don't do them as well. Um, and sometimes we get so focused on the other person when we're um, in a clinical consultation that their version of the world becomes the thing that we focus on. And um, they might come in with a particular thing they're worried about. And before we know it, the whole consultation has been taken up looking at the thing they're worried about. And we've forgotten to look wide to the whole, and to see the problem from a different angle and to see it from our own point of view because we've so absorbed their dominant crisis-like um, focus or anxious focus on something. Uh, so the skill of stepping back and seeing all three parts and noticing um, the bodies of both and the inner experiences of both people uh, and the, the diagnostic dilemma, looking at it together, um, that requires a honing. It requires reflective practice to be able to do that. You know, where I've noticed that that's most obviously, glaringly obvious, is older patients who are slowly dying. And, you know, I was just, this, we had a three-day weekend, um, Friday, or Saturday, Sunday, Monday here in the United States. And so I was the attending for the... Uh, the resident adult medicine inpatient teaching service. And we had two older patients who were slowly dying. And what was remarkable to me was the residents were all focused on figuring out, you know, what was, like one of them had made a step down in function. What happened? Did they have a stroke? Did they have a heart attack? Did they have pulmonary embolism? What happened? And I'm like, they're dying. <laughs> you know? This is how it works. And they're like, but we have to know what happened. And, and so they ordered, you know, as we do in the United States, they got an MRI scan of everything. You know, brain, lungs, abdomen, pelvis, everything, you know, to find out what had happened. And of course they didn't find anything because because dying is more subtle than that for the most part. Um, and and so is frailty. It's 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 hard to find it, you know, on your on your um, objective measurement scales, and yet it's a geriatric syndrome. And and I tried to explain to them, like I tried to explain to them white matter lesions, you know, and and that there's this gradual progression toward dementia as you shut down more and more of your white matter and you get these stepwise reductions in function and it and you won't find it on MRI because we don't well there's there's fancy ways to measure it but they only exist at Harvard. And that's four hours away. <laughs> and so I'm like, you're not gonna find anything. I mean, this is how it this is how it happens. This is what happens. You know, this is what we're dealing with. And and really we should just be trying to talk to their loved ones and 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 convince them to let the person go. Mm -hmm. Rather than torture. Yeah, I think that's a classic, that's a beautiful description of 
Uh, first of all, like the pattern recognition of frailty. I think it's one of the few spaces where the generalist view is becoming part of mainstream thinking in terms of um, physician, you know, um, thinking and geriatric thinking. There's generalist noticing that somebody's frail and that there's multiple parts to why they're frail um, and that building this complexity of why they're frail can can be addressed in multiple different ways um, so I think that's a lovely story from that point of view but I think the other element is in dying we're coming right up against these things around meaning and culture and relationship um, life story that if you only see the body through a lens of what it's doing like it's an object and you're watching someone dying like they're an object, you then lose all the relational things that need to go on around a, a death um, and lose the prioritizing of that um, in, in that process. There's a lovely hand therapist, um, Kielnhofner, who says that um, often um, clinicians remember that the body is alive but forget that it's lived and i think you know this process of being with somebody as they're dying is a part of that living uh, that we need to get good at as clinicians we need to be able to tolerate the distress of them leaving us without us fully understanding what's happening to the object that is their body because uh, just the whole event of someone dying is something beyond our understanding really um, it's beyond putting uh, into a nice algorithm uh, and it requires humanity. Yeah, and, and what was interesting this weekend was that both the people who were dying had, you know, they had severe dementia. And, and why we want to, to work so hard to keep people alive who don't want, necessarily want to be alive I mean, maybe their family members want them to be alive. It's it's yeah. it's why we spend so much money. You know, in the in the United States, we spend eighty percent of your lifetime spending for health care happens in the last year of your life because because we're mindless. We're like. <clears throat> those horses with the blinders yeah. we, we're we're just reactive oh chest pain cardiac calf cabbage hmm we don't care that you're severely demented <laughs> and, and, yeah, so, and look i think that's a that's another place where wisdom is needed yeah. is in the um whether we use our medical knowledge or not and there's a fantastic writer on this, Joanne Reeve from Hull in the north of England, who writes on the scholarship-based medicine, not just evidence-based medicine, but scholarship-based medicine. And she puts wisdom at the top of the hierarchy of how we make a decision. Um, and uh, the, the loss of wisdom means that we just see things in fragments and we just do what this machine, we think of the body like a machine, we just need to add a bit of oil here or give it a service there. And we don't understand the wisdom of holding a person within their community as they, as they pass away. Um, and that skill is, is needs to be taught well, you know, in a kind of apprenticeship way because it's quite lonely work being with somebody um, and a family when one of their loved ones dying and we need um, the support of our elders in the profession to know how to do it well um, how to not offer medical futile medical help um, and how to not interfere in a natural process when it's the time and how to know when it is and when it isn't the time is a very subtle skill that requires experience and collaboration with our peers uh, and a deep philosophy of why we offer care and how we offer care. Yes, we're coming to the end of the podcast and I wondered if you would like to 
tell people about your book and hold yeah. up and show us what you've written. Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. I haven't got a copy to show you right here, but um, it's uh, just come out in paperback, so it's a little bit more affordable. It was originally designed for libraries around the world, and um, it's published by Rutledge, and it's called A Whole Person Approach to Wellbeing, Building Sense of Safety. And in that, I do talk about the philosophy of whole person care, and I talk about um, this language, sense of safety, as a possible help to those of us who want to care for the whole person. Because we feel sense of safety in our spirit. We feel it in our way we see ourselves. We feel it in our bodies. Um, we feel it in how we manage our emotions and our relationships. And we feel it in where we are and who we're with in our community. And so this phrase might help us with the problem of all the dialects that have divided the body up into fragments and help us again to return to what really matters for this person and have a shared goal across disciplines about what the purpose of care is. is. Um, so I hope it gives us a little bit of a sense of the way forward. One of my PhD supervisors calls sense of safety the moral purpose of general practice. And um, those when we're doing ongoing research in this space, we've been doing it with physiotherapists and occupational therapists and teachers and um, uh, clinicians from around the world, um, including you in one of the focus groups, Lewis, uh, in that work, people are describing sense of safety as something that they offer, something that they are towards another person in healing. Um, so I'm hopeful it will encourage others. And I'm guessing that people can get it through the evil giant Amazon. Yes, they can. Uh, but it's actually um, a little bit, you can get it cheaper through a, a link that's on my website. And my website is drjohannalynch.com. And uh, the, on the front page, there's a code and you can, you can go to the Rootledge site and get it cheaper that way. So feel free to do that. Very good, because... Who wants to give the evil giant more income? And uh, do you want to say anything about your research before we, we finish? Um, yes. So I'm having the joy and the trial of trying to do generalist research. You know, generalist research is not easily funded and um, it is... Uh, uh, in the in-between spaces, it's got no mainstream champions, generalism. And that is part of the joy of it. It gives you the freedom to see things differently, but it also is an ache in terms of how to get this known, the knowledge that we're forming, and how to get it funded when we're researching it. Uh, but my work is looking at this concept, sense of safety, and wondering if we could create a tool that um, patients could um, notice and reflect on their own sense of safety and clinicians could be taught how to recognize the pattern when somebody's not feeling safe. And that this would help us to see things that are sometimes missed when we just look for events. So even say one of my uh, work day jobs is working in the domestic and family violence team here. And often people will just look for the event, you know, what happened, when did he hit you, that kind of uh, specificity. And they'll miss the process of, of the grinding uh, demoralization of being of emotional abuse or coercion or being trapped and not given choices and uh, losing your capacity to make decisions for yourself and so on that can happen inside coercive control, for example. And so this concept sense of safety is designed a little bit like the GP with blood pressure where well, we know what a healthy blood pressure is. So we can be sensitive to any changes to normal uh, and if we said sense of safety is a health is where health is, it's where children learn um, freedom to learn because they're feeling safe enough to explore the world around them. It's it's how our body is well when it's not um, in alarm physiology all the time, and and so uh, it can help us understand disease progression. Uh, and then of course it's in how we do relationships at a wider level in community where people's housing and their uh, finances and um, 
political um, injustices become part of our understanding of health because they all affect our sense of safety. Um, and so my hope is that this concept will be a strength-based and trauma-informed approach that's relevant across the disciplines to help us help the patient and the clinician to notice when somebody's not feeling safe in some element of the complex whole. Very cool. And um, maybe the last thing I could invite you to talk about is your conference for May yeah. of 2023. Yeah, thank you, Lewis. That's wonderful. And um, thank you so much for your willingness to be a part of that conference. We are hosting a conference for general practitioners and we, we're intentionally doing that because there's a lot of demoralization in the Australian general practice workforce. And I think around the world after COVID, um, the exhaustion and the way that our work was on the front line without necessarily the best supports um, has really affected our general practice community. So this conference is for general practitioners who have an interest in learning mental health skills and they're being taught by GPs. So we see um, GPs or family physicians have a skill set in this space that doesn't need to learn from other, um, uh, uh, you know, has to hold true to its own way of seeing the person and that therefore our teachers need to have that philosophy of the whole behind how they teach in this space. Uh, so there'll be um, GPs who do a lot of work with eating disorders, with adolescence and early childhood um, work, as well as um, some self-care and learning about vicarious traumatization. We've included some creativity uh, and we're holding it in a beautiful place, all because we want the whole person of the GP to be cared for as well, uh, with um, some Indigenous leadership in our conference design and a conference content as well, so that we uh, interconnect to um, that, that wisdom that we all need um, and that we want to honour that leadership in how we design this conference. And it's entitled Weaving Together Life, Body, Mind, the Extraordinary Practice of Journalism. And it's the first weekend in May, if I remember correctly. That's correct. That's correct. Which is colder there than it is here but <laughs> hamilton island is sort of semi-tropical i think that's right so it's a good time of year to go there uh, where there's not the big summer storms and um, we have stingers as well that are part of northern australians uh, summers but not at that time of year so swimming is more possible and um it's a beautiful part of the world. If, if people want to look it up, the Whitsunday Islands is where Hamilton Island is off the coast of Queensland. And so May would be a lot like our October, I think. Yes, except I don't think that our winters are anywhere near what the winters in Maine are like. Well, it usually doesn't get below minus 30. <laughs> We never get anywhere near even 10 degrees Celsius here. So, <laughs> Well, you know, before global warming, we got below minus 40. Mm. Remember, January of 93, it was below minus 40 every day for a month. Mm. Global warming has changed that. So it hardly ever gets to minus 30 now. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, it's been really lovely to meet with you again. Yes, indeed. And, and I look forward to, to coming to the conference in May and to further discussions. And I, I want to invite people to check out the um, Australia. Let me, let me get it right this time and not confuse the Canadian group with the Australian group. It's the Australian Society for Psychological Medicine. Right. And and there's a website, everyone, and you can go there, Google them, and join them as international members. Yes, that would be fantastic. We would really welcome you because I think there's this wisdom in amongst our generalist community that we need to protect and encourage and connect to one another and build our voice so in aspm which by the way is aspm.org.au um 
is uh, we talk about educating one another um, to hone our skills, connecting to support one another, and advocating for the generalist view of the whole person. Um, and I think right at the very beginning, Lewis, I said, what's a mental? There's no such thing as a mental. There's a person in front of us who's in distress. And so this concept that we care for distress uh, and we need to make sure that our governments and how they spend their health dollar don't ignore the distressed person for the sake of the industries of the various fragments of caring for the person that's, um, that are currently lobbying for their voice. Indeed. Well, thank you very much and uh, have a good have a good night or morning. Everyone. Morning. Yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you so much and all the best to your listeners.